0: I love how in that video it turns like 50 pages just to get to the next chapter. I don't know if anybody else noticed that. But uh, hey, good morning. My name is Adam. I am so excited to be with you all as we continue on in our series in 1 Corinthians. And we've been talking about how this church in Corinth is a pretty messed up church. It's living in a place where there's a lot of sin and corruption. And that sin and corruption had made its way into the church. And so, one of the biggest issues that Paul is addressing in his letter to the Corinthian church is disunity in the church. This is what Paul spends the first four chapters addressing. And part of this problem is because people in the church were split up into factions. They had a fan club for Paul because he was the one who founded the church. And so they're like, yeah, Paul's the best. And then we got a group over here who think that this guy named Apollos is best because he came in to pastor the church after Paul left. And he's like, yeah, Apollos is the best preacher. Woohoo, Apollos. And It's not bad to have favorite ministry leaders, but this was causing division in the church because people were more devoted to a personality than to Jesus and the mission of the church. And then another problem with their division is that they lost sight of the message of the cross, the message of what Jesus did when he came to earth to die on the cross so that we can have a relationship with God. And this message of salvation It sounds like foolishness to the rest of the world, to those who don't believe, but it is really the wisdom and the power of God. And this morning, we'll be talking about another reason for division in the church, and it's because of spiritual immaturity. So, speaking of immaturity, let me show you a picture of my dog. His name is Toro, and I'm pretty sure that if you see a picture of a dog like this, you have one of two responses. You're either like, oh, it's so cute, or you think that's not even a real dog. So <laughs> I won't tell you how I really feel about this dog because I inherited him from my fiance Gabby, and until we get married, I have full custody of him. So <laughs> Gabby just comes over to visit. She says that she comes over to see me. I know she really just comes over to see this dog. But anyways, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a pretty well-behaved dog, and he was house-trained all the way up until the point when he moved in with me. And so, on the first day, he was going to the bathroom in the house, like, every single hour. Like, for some reason, he would just leave some in the tank just to make a mess. And it's not because I wasn't taking him out. This thing was like a little stinker. I was... I was listening to worship music all night long, just trying to keep my heart in the right place. And this dog, he knew better. He's been house trained before, but he was misbehaving. He should have been mature, but what he really needed was diapers. And so my hope for all of us is that we will be a church That is spiritually mature, that we will not be like spiritual babies that never grow up. So, before we get into the passage, I want us all to just answer this question. If you're taking notes in a notebook, you can write it down in your notebook. If you use your phone for things, you can pull out your phone to the Notes app and answer this question What makes a Christian spiritually mature? What makes a Christian spiritually mature? Because I think we have some ideas about what the standard of maturity is. But we're going to get into God's word this morning and answer this question from the Bible. And if you've already answered that question and you want to follow along with me, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll be picking up in verse 1. All right. This is what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. So here, Paul is talking to Christians. We know this because he addresses them as brothers and sisters. But there are two kinds of Christians. There are Christians who walk by the Spirit and Christians who, ...who are still worldly and are immature. And so what does it look like to walk by the Spirit? And if you are a little bit fuzzy about just who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, just know that you are not alone. Because compared to how much we talk about God the Father and Jesus, we really don't talk about the Holy Spirit all that much. But his role in our lives is so important... And so, the Holy Spirit is God. Just like God the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, make up the one God of the Bible. This concept is called the Trinity, and it sounds kind of like the word for three, like uno, dos, tres, Trinity, pretty much the same thing. And I know that this is a hard concept to grasp, but here's a little bit of a chart that can help us get a visual for this. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all God, but they all have different roles. The Father is the one who sent Jesus into the world. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins, and the Holy Spirit also has a role in our lives. Last week, we talked about How the power of the gospel is really in the Holy Spirit. That it takes the Holy Spirit to work in the heart of a non-Christian for them to accept that message. The Holy Spirit also has a role in the lives of believers. For us to live in obedience to God and to understand what his word says. I've often heard it said that the Christian life is hard. It's not just hard. It's impossible without the power of God. And so this is why we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if you are a believer in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Have you ever had those times when just a Bible verse or something from a sermon pops into your head right when you need it the most? I don't think it's because we have such good memory. I think that's the work of God in our lives. Or have you ever had those times when you felt prompted to reach out to somebody, to talk to them, to encourage them, or to shoot them a text or give them a call just to let them know that you're thinking of them. And then you find out later that that person really needed somebody in that moment to reach out to them. And I think that prompting often comes from the Holy Spirit. Or to overcome sin in our lives. I think at one point or another, all of us have had a sin in our lives that we held pretty close, that we didn't want to give up. And then we started to feel guilty about that sin, and we realized that uh, our sin and how God wants us to live, it doesn't match up. And so what we go through there is the Holy Spirit working in our heart to convict us of our sin. And so if you are a Christian, you make choices every single day whether you are going to live by the Spirit or ignore the Spirit. And Paul gives a little bit more details about what a life is that lives by the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so these are what Mark a Christian that is living by the Spirit. But the people in Corinth, they were not at all living this way. These were the kinds of people that even though they believed in Jesus for salvation, they would still mistreat their co-workers. They would go to church at one day and then go out and get drunk with their friends the next day. They would get into fights and arguments and disagreements and cause division. And some of these people They had been Christians for a long time, and they still live this way. So let's keep on reading what Paul says to them in verse 2 here. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So the people in the church were like, hey, Paul, we've heard you talk about the gospel before. And that's all good and all, but we've heard that before. Why don't you teach us some of the deep things? Like, let's get into the nitty-gritty. But what they needed most was not to get into the nitty-gritty. What they needed most was to actually live out what they already knew. They didn't need to move beyond the gospel. They needed to move deeper into the gospel. It's what they needed the most. And so when Paul says, I gave you milk, he's talking about the gospel here. And the gospel isn't just what non Christian Christians need so that they can believe in Jesus for salvation. Yes, it is good for that. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, you need the gospel just as much. And to live out the gospel means that we are serious about sin in our lives. When we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he died for our every sin. He died for all the times that we lie, all the times that we argue, all the times that we are prideful and we don't show grace to other people. When we remember that, It compels us to take sin seriously. And also, when we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, it compels us to live in obedience to him. Because Jesus' death on the cross was the greatest display of love that the world has ever seen. And can we love God back for that love that he showed us? Jesus said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so for us... To go deeper into the gospel means that we go deeper into obedience in God. And that's what I think maturity in our faith is all about. There's this misconception that being mature as a Christian comes from just knowing all the things of the Bible that are kind of unclear or hard to understand. A lot of people will think that they're getting into the meat if they're studying out prophecy or they're trying to come up with a timeline for end times and they know exactly when the rapture is going to be or they do Bible word studies in the Greek and the Hebrew. And all of that is fine and dandy. That's all good stuff. But that's not what makes somebody spiritually mature. That is just head knowledge. And so let me just go back to the illustration about my dog. So, yeah, we thought we were done talking about my dog. We are not. He is a very immature dog, and he knows better than to go to the bathroom in the house. But what if he came up to me one time and was like, Hey, Adam, will you teach me how to ride a unicycle and do backflips? I would be like, no way. You can't even master going to the bathroom, all right? I'm not going to teach you those kinds of tricks, but even if my dog went to dog training sessions every single week, even if he read all the dog training manu- manuals on the market, he would still be an immature dog if he didn't just act the way he was supposed to and just master the basics of being house trained. And I think this illustrates the truth that spiritual maturity is most clearly seen in how we treat others or how we behave And not so much by how much knowledge we have. And this jealousy and the quarreling going on in the Corinthian church is kind of like the equivalent of my dog going to the bathroom on the carpet. Like it's just basics, obedience, and living for God. And they were acting like non-Christians because they were not living in obedience to God. They were more devoted to their favorite ministry leader than they were to God himself. And so let's see what Paul goes on to say in verse 4 here. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe? And so Paul's bringing up this issue of division that we talked about a few weeks ago, where people are saying, yeah, I follow Paul, and others are saying, yeah, I follow Apollos. And guys like Paul and Apollos were very gifted men. God used them in incredible ways. But they shouldn't be made out to be larger than life. They aren't the ones who are solely responsible for people coming to faith in Jesus for salvation. They don't deserve all the credit for the growth of the church. They were just doing the ministry tasks that God had called them to do. This last week, my fiancé moved from Virginia to Pennsylvania. And until we get married, she'll be living with one of her friends but in the meantime, some of her home decorations have already made it into my house. So my house went from looking like this to looking like this. I I have never... <laughs> yeah. I have never taken care of so many plants before. Actually, I'm not really the one taking care of them. I just get to watch them grow. I could give them a little bit of water here and there. But, and I can... I can kill a plant, but I can't make a plant grow. And the processes for a plant to grow are way beyond my understanding. Like what I know is just giving them a little bit of water is a very small contribution compared to the processes of nature that God set in motion for that plant to grow and to be healthy. And I think this illustrates the truth that guys like Apollos and Paul, ministry leaders, they have a part in God's mission and his work for the church. They do their little piece, but it is a small contribution compared to what God does for people to come to faith in Jesus and for the church to grow. And so let us not let jealousy and arguments make its way into our church because we're just so hung up on our preferences for how we do ministry or the people that we are following in the church. And so for sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 16. But this is where we see that church unity is a pretty big deal to God. In verse 16 it says, Do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. The temple represents the presence of God. All the way back in the beginning, shortly after God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, God dwelt in the Garden of Eden with the first humans, Adam and Eve. And so Adam and Eve had direct access to the presence of God. And then when sin entered the world, it put a separation between humanity and God. And the presence of God has not been the same since and in our midst. And then down the road, after the nation of Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt, God gave them commandments for building a tabernacle, pretty much a portable tent that they would take along with them, and God's presence would dwell within that tabernacle. And then as they got more established in the promised land, they built a temple. And God's presence was in that temple and in the Holy of Holies. This was a chamber that was blocked off by a curtain. And then when Jesus died on the cross and gave up his last breath, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the chamber that only priests were allowed to enter once a year, that curtain ripped in half from the top to the bottom And it wasn't a human that ripped that curtain, but that was by the power of God. And it represented that we are no longer cut off from the presence of God, that we don't need a high priest to go between us and God because Jesus filled that role of high priest. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And the presence of God is not fixed to a location. The presence of God is not in a church building. The building is nothing but bricks and mortar. But when we as a people gather together, the presence of God is among us because God is within each and every one of us. And so it is a big deal to God for somebody to come in and to destroy his temple, And so I don't know exactly what it means here when it says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. But let me tell you, I don't want to find out. And what I do know is that God takes church unity very seriously. And so what does that mean for us? I think, first, mature Christians practice mirror gazing rather than finger pointing. It's a lot easier to be able to point out the faults in other people than to take an honest look at ourselves and see the areas of our lives that we need to work on. And it can be pretty easy to think that we are spiritually mature just because we grew up in a Christian family, just because we've grown up in church for most of our lives. We know a lot of the Bible stories. Maybe you know a lot of facts about the Bible. I totally get it. Whenever I read the book of Proverbs, I tend to associate myself with the wise man. And I don't think of myself as that fool who needs correction. But for all of us, I think we could take an honest look at ourselves and just ask, are we living by the Holy Spirit? Do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? And secondly, I want to leave us with this statement. The unity of the church is your responsibility. Even if you're not a member, if you plan on coming here next week, if you call Bridgewater Tunkhannock your church, then the unity of this church is your responsibility. And I know that there is no such thing as a perfect church. If you ever found a perfect church, you would mess it up by going there because we are all imperfect people. That's just... The reality. And when we gather together, it's a gathering of imperfect people. But I know we can all do our part to make the church more unified. And so here's a question for all of us to answer is this. How unified would the church be if everyone acted just like you? If other people talked about other people the way that you do, would our church be more unified Would our church be unified if people showed grace and humility the way that you show grace and humility? Or would we be a disunified church? And I really do believe that we can be a mature and unified church when we cling to the gospel, when we dive deeper into the gospel, and when we focus on living by the Holy Spirit in our personal lives. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of love and unity. I thank you that your word says that we are to maintain unity in the church. It's not our job to create it, because you create the unity. You are the one God that is worthy of all our worship. You are the one God that brings us all together, and you are a God who is great and awesome. And I just, I thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, because this Christian life is really impossible without your strength. And I thank you that you make a way for us to live in a way that honors you. And I pray that we would be united as a church in all that we do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. an awesome sermon just to think about.